takes like four minutes for them all to leave. That's just, uh, praise the Lord for that. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. We'll read once again this whole passage, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Well, as we continue talking about the church's shepherds, we're pouring a pretty broad foundation of spiritual concrete here upon which the actual qualifications of a shepherd will sit very easily. And today, continuing our home-based consideration of 1 Timothy 3.1, we're really beginning what's kind of a short mini-series within this series, considering the idea of vocational and volunteer shepherds. Men whom God has called into the full-time supported ministry of shepherding God's people and those who volunteer while making their living elsewhere. Now, this particular dynamic of the vocational and the volunteer shepherd in some churches has been the greatest source of joy and pleasure and delight in these ministries as the, the two types of shepherds minister together. And quite frankly, in some churches, this has been the the source of sorrow and despair and tension and agony. And so understanding this concept is very important to us. And, and once again, to your credit, I've been preaching a series basically designed at one level to train current and future shepherds. But you've risen to the challenge. You've been applying these truths to your own, your own knowledge of the church and your understanding of right ecclesiology. And quite honestly, your response to this series has been phenomenal. And you've been... Uh, making me very motivated and very proud to preach to this body of believers. And so in our little mini-series here concerning the vocational and the volunteer shepherds, we're basically going to cover uh, today, we'll do some basic understanding. We need to fully appreciate some of the nuances of eldership and shepherding as either vocational or volunteer. Next time, we'll focus on the volunteer shepherds and elders, and we'll finish up focusing on the vocational shepherds, what we more commonly call the pastoral staff. And so today, my goal is just to give us a basic understanding in this kind of little series within the series. We've already explained that in the New Testament, the, ter- the terms pastor and shepherd, elder, overseer, these are all synonymous. But within that office of spiritual leadership, we do see a subtle distinction which we can discern from multiple angles. It's not a distinction in terms of authority. It's a distinction in terms of function. And I hope by the time we're done today, that'll be very clear to you. Now, we have to note that church leadership comes in many varieties, many forms that all fall within the broad biblical parameters that we've been setting forth. And and this may just be situational in nature. 
For example, in a smaller church or a developing church plant, the teaching pastor may in fact be volunteer or be part-time in regards to the financial support of his family. I did that for 16 years. And so I'm very aware of that particular dynamic. In some church settings, especially among our Baptist brothers, the, the pastoral staff may function as the sole spiritual leadership of the church with all of them being financially supported. And in our setting and in churches kind of cut from the same cloth that we are theologically, we've seen the wisdom in taking some distinctions that we'll look at from 1 Timothy 5 in utilizing both the volunteer and the vocational leaders. But before we really dig into this understanding of kind of this more subtle distinction, I think it's reasonable for you to ask the question, so what? Why do I need to sit through this for the next 45 or 50 minutes? What does this have to do with me? I want to give you three reasons that this is important to you. The first reason we'll call your expectations. Your expectations. If we have a distinction between the vocational and the volunteer leadership in the church, then you have some reasonable expectations. Concerning the vocational leadership, the men whose families that you're giving supports financially, you have a reasonable expectation of a return on your investment. I've never, I, I've never thought that the church members should come and receive the truth for free. At the same time, we've never thought that you shouldn't get something in return for what you give. I remember being in seminary and somebody asked the professor, how do you know who the council? He said, it's easy. If they're members, you make them a priority. If they're not, you don't because they're giving. And so you have that right to expect that. We expect our pastoral staff to work hard. This is not a job. It's a calling from God. It is a lifestyle we're to serve Christ by serving His church. You have the, the reasonable expectation that the Word of God is taught, is preached and disseminated with, with intensity, with effort, with diligence. In our case, we've chosen to pay a full-time shepherd over music worship because that's so key to our knowledge of God, our walk with God, and our, our expression of praise to God. And you should expect that your paid leadership stays focused on the task to which they've been called. Pastors who try to do everything themselves find themselves often failing in the main thing that they're called to do, and that is spending the majority of their time seeking God in His Word and having something to say that's life-changing from the Scriptures. Never should it be said that a shepherd comes into the pulpit with nothing to say. Concerning the volunteer leadership, your expectations are reasonable. The men who lead you yet do so without financial remuneration, you have a reasonable expectation that they're men who walk with God in a deep and meaningful way. Men who think theologically, men who are capable of refuting false doctrine and standing for right doctrine from the scriptures, as Titus 1 calls them to do. It is a terrible mistake the churches make in allowing men to lead simply because they're successful in business or because they have deep pockets or because they're pushy or because they're loud. That's a mistake. You should expect all of your leaders to be theological men who lead with love and who care deeply for Christ's agenda for the church. And so the first reason this is important for you is your expectations. The second reason we'll call your obligations. Your obligation. Scripture has much to say about the sheep's obligations to the shepherds, and we'll actually spend an entire message on this in a few weeks. But suffice to say for the moment that the New Testament presents 
some basic attitudes and actions concerning your shepherds. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And so we get three commands to the sheep here. Members are called to, first of all, respect their, their, their elders. And that literally means to know them, to be familiar with them and know the shepherds. You would think it would be the other way around, that it's our responsibility to know you, and that is true, but it's your responsibility to know your shepherds as well. And that makes for a, a wonderful in-sync body life in which the word of God is going amongst people who all love one another. The second obligation we saw from 1 Thessalonians 5 is esteem. To esteem them. It means to regard someone worthy of respect because of their position. And in fact, Paul says to esteem them very highly. It means super abundantly, beyond all degree, beyond all measure. And why are they to be esteemed? In love because of their work. Not because they always please you. Not because shepherds have a a winning personality or an amazing stage presence or anything like that. It's just for their work. Because of the overall work that they do for the body. And and the third obligation, according to this passage, that the the sheep have to the shepherds is to be peaceful. To be peaceful. The, The context is the shepherd and sheep relationship. It helps the shepherds do the work of the ministry when the sheep are at peace with one another and the sheep are at peace with the shepherds. That allows the ministry to move forward. And when that peace isn't there, you now are destabilizing the entire church. One more reason that this is important for you, your expectations, your obligations. The third reason, your supplications. Your supplications, your prayers. The church is fueled by the prayers of the membership for the leaders. That, that's, what, that's the jet fuel that drives us forward in ministry. I think about the Apostle Paul. It seemed like he was always asking for prayer. Romans 15.30, Paul requested that the Roman Christians strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul wrote, You must, must help us by prayer. Ephesians 6.19, Paul requested persevering prayer, quote, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul asked the Colossian church in Colossians 4.3, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. To the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, Paul simply said, brothers, pray for us. And in the second letter to the church at Thessalonica, he made two requests in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. He said, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. Paul was constantly asking for prayer and, and we need your prayers. The church is fueled by the members' prayers for the faithfulness of the leaders. So keep in mind your expectations, your obligations, and your supplications as we think about the vocational and the volunteer shepherds of Christ's church. And what we're doing today is some basic ecclesiology. And we have to lay this foundation so that we make sure we're all on the same page moving forward. What I'm going to do is start broadly and and work to more uh, specifics here. And I'll just give you three key words. The first word is all. Second word is some. And the third word, kind of two words, a few. 
All, some, and a few, and that'll help us understand this dynamic of vocational and volunteer shepherds. So the first key word, all. All shepherds bear the responsibility of the church. All shepherds bear the responsibility of the church. We'll spend some time in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, then back to 1 Timothy as well. The Apostle Paul told Timothy that the call to the gospel ministry is a precious possession. It's worth guarding. It's worth shielding. Turn to the next page in your Bible, so 1 Timothy 4, and look with me at verse 16. Look at the value and the worth of the gospel ministry. 1 Timothy four sixteen, right before chapter 5. Paul tells Timothy, <clears throat> Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. You notice this, that guarding this calling to the ministry is, is for the good of both the shepherd and the sheep. It's good for everybody. That we don't take this lightly. That what issues from the pulpit cannot be taken lightly. It cannot be spontaneous. It cannot be just something that we make up. Guard the calling. And as we've already seen and we'll see in more detail when we get to the qualifications, shepherds aren't just haphazardly chosen men. They're not to be chosen for worldly success or prestige or aggressiveness or wealth or just because they're, they're louder than others. No, look with me in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 22. 1 Timothy five twenty-two. Look at the instruction Paul gives Timothy concerning the choice of leadership in the church. He says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The laying on of hands refers to the ordaining and the commissioning of the official shepherds of the church. And he tells Timothy, keep yourself pure. In other words, don't put in men who are going to be lousy leaders. And the the implication is if you do, and it comes to a conflict over right and wrong, you've got to stand for what's right. You've got to keep yourself pure no matter what. But Timothy was to be careful not to choose men quickly or hastily. Why is this? I think this makes sense. Because even when the church takes great care and great pains to ordain godly and qualified men, it doesn't always work out. Sometimes there's a lack of giftedness, which is only recognized later. And it's no shame at all for an elder to recognize this over time and maybe to step down and serve in a different capacity I've known men who have done this and they often express relief that they're functioning now more within the realm of how God made them in particular. Sometimes there's a lack of character. This was the case of some of the Ephesian elders who were strained from the pure gospel and we saw this in chapter one a number of months ago. And sometimes there are those who are given the title and they find that they like the power more than they love the sheep. Men who were faithful in the ministry without a title and once you give them a title they just quit being any good this is why one of the qualifications of an elder that we just read is that he must not be a recent convert or he might become puffed up with conceit we see the same care in paul's second letter to timothy turn over with me to second timothy chapter 2 second timothy 2 verse 15 what we'll see is that there's to be a process in the appointment of the shepherds of the church 
Timothy has already been through this process under the instruction of Paul himself. And Paul reminds Timothy to live up to the fact that he has been approved. 1 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I, I hate to burst the bubble of everybody who's been through Awana. Approved workers are not ashamed, but this is for the shepherds of the church. That is the context. It's not a general verse to all the church. It is specific to the shepherds. They are approved. Literally, those who have been tested, they've been through something. They have been through something more than just like some pastors will do. And I've seen this given a little book on how to be a leader. And they read the book and say, okay, now you're, you're tested. No, you're not. You just read the introduction to the other thousand books you ought to be reading. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean formal seminary training, although we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks because there is a biblical basis for training at that level that I'll show you. But it does mean that at the very least, within the confines of the local church, some training, some testing, some approval process has been accomplished. Why is this so important? Well, because an approved man has now stated, I want to be accountable to God himself for the souls of men. We should no more approve a man after six months of testing than we would approve a pilot for a 747 after six months of of trying it out. What do you want on the pilots of your planes that you are flying in? You want gray hair, right? You want men who look like they've been doing this for a while. When pilots come in and they have pimples, that makes you nervous. (laughs) You want them to know what they're doing. This is a big deal. I I, I have worked with a number of churches and there are elders at times that act like this is is their right and that it's it's, it's their privilege that they ought to be doing this because they're so special. No, it's the other way around. An elder is saying, I am willing to be accountable to God himself for souls. That's terrifying. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. If I had a choice of one verse to take out of the Bible, I would take that one really fast. But then I get nailed by James 3, 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You know, when the great uh, Scottish reformer John Knox learned that he was approved to be ordained to the gospel ministry, he went to his house and he closed the door in his room and he wept bitterly because he knew what had just been placed on his shoulders was a responsibility that he couldn't bear. And so for all the shepherds who bear the responsibility for the church, this means a healthy and a robust helplessness and dependence on the Lord. That's what's in order. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, that it is God who has made him sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. The the real power in the church is the Holy Spirit. That's the real power. I don't know what this giving of an account will be like. I don't understand that. Scripture doesn't say. It's just mysterious enough to be like the dad who tells his kid, don't go this way because you're not going to like what happens when you do. Uh, What's going to happen? I'm not going to tell you. You're just not going to like it. Our key words, all, some, a few. 
to help us understand this dynamic of vocational volunteer shepherds. First key word, all shepherds bear the responsibility of the church. Let's narrow it down a little bit. Second key word, some. Some shepherds devote their lives to the responsibility of the church. Some shepherds devote their lives to the responsibility of the church. And now is where we begin to see a distinction, not of authority, but of function and commitment. Turn back with me to 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy 5, we're going to learn some basic facts about shepherding in the church. 1 Timothy 5, look with me at verse 17. Very rich verse for us with a lot of layers. 1 Timothy 5, 17 tells us, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we learned some some basic facts, just several of them here, about shepherding in the church. First fact, elders rule the church. We, We are not called to be consultants. It is a ruling office. It's not a dictatorial rule in that what Peter calls domineering over those in your charge. That's not the case. But it is a rule, nonetheless, in that the elders have the spiritual authority to call for and, frankly, even insist on obedience to Christ. Your obedience is not something we're to suggest. It is something we're to call for and we're to insist upon it. Titus 2.15 tells us this. What kind of rule is it? It's a fatherly rule. It is a parenting sort of authority, a spiritual parenting and so elders rule the church. Now we get a little more specific. Another fact, elders are worthy of double honor. They're worthy of double honor. Literally a two-fold honor. You just picture a piece of paper folded in two. It's, it's doubled. We have here the Greek word teme for honor. It has a rich depth of meaning. First of all, it means what you think it would mean. And an attitude of respect and deference and obedience. But secondly, teme simply means money. Financial remuneration. Timae is used this way elsewhere in the New Testament. And so we get this broad view that elders are worthy of double honor. Elders are worthy of double honor, it says here, if they rule well, if they're doing an outstanding job. Now, it just says they're worthy of double honor. It doesn't mean that all of them need or should receive financial remuneration. The beauty of this text is that it's just vague enough that we have a wide variety of applications that are certainly possible with the latitude of the larger umbrella of sound ecclesiology. Because now we see a distinction. And there's another fact. Here's a third fact. Elders who labor at preaching and teaching are especially worthy of double honor. Especially worthy of double honor. Especially means above all, most of all, or to an unusual degree that there is a difference here. And now it becomes very clear that Paul is talking about money. He gives an illustration from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And he says here in verse 18, For the scripture says, and now he quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So now we're clearly talking about money. Now, why this illustration here? Some have said that Paul is taking a verse out of context just to make a point. I don't think he's doing that, and I'll show you this. 
Now, why is he comparing the pastor to an ox? Should I be offended? I don't know. Well, let's talk about the ox for a moment. In the ancient Near East, the ox was often used as part of the harvest process. In this case, treading out the grain. An ox or a pair of oxen could be used to drag a heavy threshing board behind them. And that started the process of separating the good grain from the husks of the grain. And in fact, in the context of Deuteronomy 25, 4, this is not merely a verse about being kind to your animals. It's not about that. In fact, Martin Luther famously said that this verse can't be for the ox because the ox can't read. So it can't be about the ox. The context in the larger section of Deuteronomy is a section on how the citizens of Israel were to treat one another, especially when it comes to justice. And in fact, this law is not for the owners of the ox. If it were for the owners of the ox, it wouldn't make sense. By virtue of ownership, there's already a built-in motivation to take care of your property. The ox was the the modern-day equivalent of the tractor. You don't say, I'm not going to put any gas on my tractor. I'm not going to put oil in in the engine. I'm going to take care of it because it's mine. It costs me money. And so the owner is very motivated to keep feeding the ox even while it's threshing the grain. In other words, you didn't put a muzzle on it that while he's working, he's free to bend down and eat whatever he wants. If someone is using an ox to thresh his grain harvest and he's muzzled the ox, why is that? It's because he doesn't own the ox. In fact, it was very common that a farmer who didn't have the means that maybe his neighbors did to borrow or rent an ox from his neighbor. And the renter or borrower of an ox, well, if he didn't want to lose any grain to the ox, he would muzzle the ox. After all, it's not his ox. He doesn't care if the ox starves all day while he's working. But it's not a commentary on how to treat the ox. It's a commentary on how to treat your neighbor. Have you ever loaned your car to someone and they return it on empty and dirty? What do you think? Not loaning my car to you again. It's the same thing. But more to Paul's use of Deuteronomy 25.4, it's a commentary on value. An ox is of much more value than a few little measly mouthfuls of grain. And so the person refusing to let the ox eat from the produce is devaluing the ox, which is not easily replaced, and instead being stingy with just a few mouthfuls of grain that will never even be missed. And so it's a matter of justice and a matter of value. It's unjust to the owner of the ox to be stingy in feeding the ox, and it's a matter of value in that the ox is of much more value than the grain. So what's Paul's point in regard to the financial support of vocational shepherds? Well, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. In other words, that if God is concerned about the justice and value of the ox that is helping with the harvest... How much more is God concerned about the shepherds that feed the people of God, the very words of God? For the vocational shepherds, the ones who work hard at preaching and teaching, to provide for them is a matter of justice and value. I feel very comfortable being open about this at Grace Bible Church because our elders understand this really well already. I'm frankly amazed at how many churches and their leadership view paying the teaching pastors as some sort of charity. It's not charity. It is a matter of justice, and it's a matter of value. And in fact, I don't even have to tell you this. 
in this sense, and, and, and we've seen this so often at this church, the life-changing impact of the preached word of God does something to you. It makes you yearn to thank God tangibly. You can't send God a check, but you can give to the church, and you yearn to do that. It, it, it boils up within you. you. You would shy away from the idea of receiving the life-changing truth of God and doing this for nothing. It, it burns within your heart to do this. But I do want to address both of those, the justice and the value, because this really cuts to the, the heart of a church's overall attitude toward their leadership. Many of you in years to come may be influential in giving understanding to this issue, and many of you even hearing this message live streaming right now, you may be in a position to be influential on this issue in your own churches as well. So first, the matter of justice. The matter of justice is that you're receiving the life-giving, life-changing, soul-altering preaching of the word of God. And to not give toward the support of that endeavor is unjust. It's like the man who rents an ox and starves it simply because he can. I'm amazed at how many Christians don't give and they receive the word of God for free and yet they would never walk into a restaurant and steal a meal and walk out without paying. In the very strictest sense, the vocational shepherd doesn't have a job. I don't have a job. This is not an exchange of services for a paycheck. It's a calling in which a man devotes his life to serving the Lord and the church provides well for him as he does so. I think a better word rather than job is sponsorship. It's much more of a sponsorship for a man to do the work of the ministry both inside the walls of the church and outside the walls serving the church universal. And so there's the matter of justice. Then there's the matter of value. I've had the opportunity to work with a number of church leadership teams on this particular issue, and I'm stunned at how often I hear leaders who are looking for a pastor try to get the most bang for their buck on their pastoral staff, arguing over a few thousand dollars here and there. I've often heard lay leaders say, and this is a common phrase, well, he, meaning the pastor, just needs to have faith. How about this? The leadership of the church needs to have faith that if they will obey the Lord, God will bless the church. Here's where the value comes in. It takes years and years and years to develop just one preaching pastor who can handle the word of God with skill and with precision. And so when the church gets its hands on one or two of them, to try to do it as cheaply as possible makes no sense. That makes no sense at all. Money is everywhere. Faithful shepherds are few and far between. It is to value a few thousand dollars over and above the life-changing, cool, refreshing water of the Word of God, which glorifies Christ and sends the soul heavenward. I have a friend in the ministry whose leaders did not understand this concept, and by God's grace, he was able to begin shepherding them through this, and the chairman of their eldership asked to meet with him, and he met with this teaching pastor, and he said, I want to repent to you. And here's how we want to repent, not just saying, I'm sorry, but how's this number for your giant family? How's this number to help you buy a home? How's this number to motivate you? And it just brought my friend to tears that they did this. You know, this church is exploding with growth now because they started in the right place. People are getting saved. People are being discipled. In fact, I would tell you this. Your giving is first and foremost for the dissemination of the word of God. Ultimately, we don't need a building. 
There's a lot of nice trees outside we could find. Ultimately, we don't need electricity. You can just all hold your phones up. Ultimately, we don't need anything. We must have the word of God. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And if I could say this, if Grace Bible Church were included in the letters to the churches of Revelation 2 and 3, I think it would say something like this. I know your generosity that you have valued the word of God. I didn't have time to do this and I had to take it out of my notes, but I made a list of all the times I could remember in my eight and a half years here that over and over and over again, you have valued the word that when given the opportunity to disseminate the gospel and to teach the truth of the word of God, you have just, you have just poured out generously. We've seen it over and over again. And it moves me to think how you value truth, how you value Proverbs twenty three twenty three that says, by truth, Every time there's an opportunity to tangibly promote the life-changing word of God, you have been stunningly generous. It's been quite amazing. And so there's a clear delineation that some are called to devote their lives to this work. In terms of authority, there's really no difference. In terms of function, there are some key differences, primarily in the devotion to the word of God. And so our key words, all, some, a few, to help us understand this dynamic, first key word, all shepherds bear the responsibility of the church. Second key word, some shepherds devote their lives to the responsibility of the church. And the third key word, really two, a few. A few shepherds are leaders among equals in the church. A few shepherds are leaders among equals in the church. God has designed the leadership of the church to be a plurality of elders, multiple qualified men shepherding the flock. Some of them may be vocational as they devote the totality of their lives to shepherding the church. And a few shepherds in the church of Jesus Christ are called to be what the Romans called in Latin primus inter pares. Primus inter pares means the first among equals. We have examples of this even in our modern world. The chief justice of the Supreme Court is the unofficial leader of the court, and yet his vote only counts the same as all the others. And it's unofficial. And God has given this concept to the church as well. Now, our brothers in the Plymouth Brethren churches, they don't hold to this idea. And in fact, they're very careful to completely avoid the idea of a clergy and a laity division in the church. And in this, they have a very, very good point. The elders or pastors don't have some sort of special line to God that you don't get. There aren't two types of Christians, the regular guys and the clergy. That, that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, we have much in common with our Plymouth brethren, brothers and sisters. They, we, along with them, believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe in the plurality of overseers, as we've said multiple times. In fact, most Plymouth brethren churches are pre tribulational and dispensational in their theology like we are there have been great christian leaders in the past who have been part of plymouth brethren scholar ff bruce missionary jim elliott great preacher named h.a ironside the great caretaker of thousands of orphans george mueller bible scholars we vine and william mcdonald in fact one of my professors in seminary is plymouth brethren and he's one of the godliest men i've ever known They've been traditionally very active in foreign missions and spreading the gospel. 
And so we have so much in common with our brothers and the Plymouth Brethren, but I bring them up because they don't generally pay anyone. They take double honor as purely honor in the sense of respect. They use the example of Paul who didn't take pay in the Thessalonian church or at least for a short time in the Ephesian church. But if you study that carefully, that was for a specific time, for a limited time, for, for very clear reasons. Paul himself even said in 1 Corinthians 9 that he has a right to be supported by the church. 1 Corinthians 9, 7, he said, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? He said in verse 11, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So you really can't make a solid argument against the vocational shepherd. But here's why I bring them up in particular. In many Plymouth Brethren churches, which espouse a completely uniform leadership group, faithful men as leaders, almost always there rises to the top one particular gifted preacher who does almost all the preaching. That still happens, even though that's not officially what they say. And while we don't see a direct command in the New Testament about primus inter pares, first among equals, it's modeled all over the place in very clear fashion. And I want to just show this to you just by looking at some different people. You don't have to turn to these passages. Just kind of follow along thinking about your knowledge of these people. How about Peter? Peter's probably our best example. At times, Peter, James, and John are called upon to be with Jesus without the other nine apostles. And I wonder if that hurt their feelings, but that's just what happened. They were with Jesus at his transfiguration in Matthew 17. They alone were with Jesus when he raised a little girl from the dead in Luke 8. They alone were a little ways off to be with Jesus in his hour of agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, Peter is listed first in every list of the apostles, and Matthew goes so far as to just call him the first one. He's the first one. Peter speaks and acts more than any of the other 12 apostles in the Gospels, way more than any of them. And not only did Peter have a responsibility to the whole church, he had a responsibility to shepherd the other shepherds as well. When Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him three times and then be restored, Jesus said in Luke twenty two thirty two, And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers, meaning these guys right here. Because in a very real sense, Peter wasn't the only apostle to temporarily deny Christ. When Jesus was arrested, how many of them ran away? They all did. And so Peter is called upon to shepherd the other shepherds. The book of Acts clearly demonstrates Peter as the, the chief church shepherd for the first 12 chapters. Only with the advent of the Apostle Paul does Acts then shift away from emphasizing Peter. Paul calls Peter one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem in Galatians 2. And yet Peter didn't have a separate title or rank. The others of the 12 weren't his assistants. They were equal in rank. He was the first among equals. Consider Paul and Barnabas as a, as a group. In Acts 13, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a, long time, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that is Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So who are all these men? These are the elders at the church of Antioch in Syria. And the Lord set apart two of them. 
to be those who primarily proclaim the gospel. Simeon, Lucius, and Menaean are qualified elders, and yet God set apart two, Barnabas and Saul, or Paul. But let's divide that even further. Consider just Paul by himself. Among Paul and Barnabas, Paul was clearly the first among those two, along with others who came with them. Acts 13.13 simply refers to Paul and his companions. And if Barnabas were a proud man, he'd be going, hey, I I didn't even get named there. But he's with the companions. Acts 14.12 tells us that Paul was, quote, the chief speaker to the crowds who were hearing the gospel. And in fact, Paul even stood against Barnabas when Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, yes, the same John Mark who would go on to write the gospel of Mark. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on their continued missionary journeys, and Paul said, no, he's not coming. Why was that? Well, Mark had failed to stay the course in an earlier city, Pamphylia, and basically didn't show up to do what he was supposed to do. And so Paul wouldn't have him come on their next leg. Barnabas disagreed, and he left. Well, there's probably another reason, because Mark was old Barney's cousin. And so you kind of had a family first deal there where Barnabas did not uh, submit to Paul. Paul stood his ground, even to the point of splitting with Barnabas. What happened then? Well, you recall that Paul then took Silas with him, and it was Paul and Silas who were now recognized and commended by the brothers in the church at Antioch. Now, you know this has a happy ending. At some point, Mark made things right with Paul and is included in later lists of faithful men of God and is, in fact, counted by Paul as a worthy minister of the gospel in Colossians 4. Let me give you one other example. The angels to the seven churches of Revelation in Revelation 2 and 3. And we've got to get a little technical here for just a minute. The word for angel, angelos, sounds like angel, just means messenger. And very often, the Hebrew equivalent and angelos are both used to speak of heavenly messengers and human messengers. And we tend to think of angels just as the, the, the guys flying around in heaven, right? That's not the word angelos. The best view in this case is a human messenger. Now, let me just give you a little evidence. We could go a long ways on this, but I'll just give you a couple of things to help you understand this. First of all, extra-biblical writers such as Josephus use this term to refer to human messengers. It was common knowledge. Angelos meant a messenger. The responsibility that Jesus places on these messengers at each church fits exactly with the warning of Hebrews thirteen seventeen, which states that the leaders of the church will give an account for the souls of those in their charge. That's never said of a, of a heavenly angel that they're responsible for a church. These messengers in Revelation 2 and 3 received both commendations and rebukes. They were expected to make things change in the churches. Nowhere are heavenly angels charged with this responsibility. It's funny that prevailing wisdom with new pastors is often don't try to change things in the church. You know what they're supposed to do? Try to change everything in the church. That's what they're supposed to do. Each letter is written to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the angel in the church of Smyrna and so forth, and taken with the clear understanding from the rest of Scripture that we go with a plurality, multiple elders, the only possibility left is that this is a human leader among equals. And he is to preach in response to the message given to him by Christ in each case, which, by the way, tells us all the correctives given to these five out of seven of the churches got correctives. How was the church to be corrected? 
through the preached word. That's how it was to happen. That's why it's addressed to the angel, to the preacher, to the messenger of the church. There seems to be a terrifying level of responsibility to the preacher to preach the truth and do what is right in the eyes of Christ and no one else. And so the example of primus inter pares is really all over the New Testament. This is not so that the leader among leaders or the first among equals does all the thinking, does all the decision making. All elders are elders indeed and in authority and should act as such. Let me put it to you this way. When you're speaking to any of the elders, you're speaking to the highest human authority in the church. There is no higher. You, you don't speak to an elder and you don't like what he says and you say, well, I'm going to go tell Steve. That doesn't make any difference. He's an elder too. I'm going to say, what do you want me to do? He already spoke. Alexander Strzok wrote this, I think a really helpful summary. Although elders act jointly as a council and share equal authority and responsibility for the leadership of the church, all are not equal in their giftedness, biblical knowledge, leadership ability, experience, or dedication. Therefore, those among the elders who are particularly gifted leaders and or teachers will naturally stand out among the other elders as leaders and teachers within the leadership body. That makes sense. Now, we've, we've been in kind of the theoretical. I want to give you a couple of practical reasons why this is a good idea. I'll give you four of them, in fact, for a leader among leaders or a first among equals. The first reason this is good is that it provides some to work hard at preaching and teaching. It provides some to work hard at preaching and teaching. Don't raise your hand, but I know many of you have been in churches where you know that the guy standing behind the pulpit didn't put any work in. That there's no effort. That he's expecting to be zapped by the Holy Spirit between that door and the pulpit and something magical to happen. Yeah, something magical happens, all right. Everyone goes to sleep because there's no preparation. I, I, I got to tell you, getting to study the Bible for the majority of my week is an amazing privilege. And what I am to do is to take what I've learned and to pass it on to you, to take 20 and 30 hours of study and to compress it into an hour or two on a Sunday so that you get the same benefit. The more ministry work and leadership that others provide, the more the teaching pastors can focus solely on knowing the word of God. I've been preaching for a little while now, and I got to tell you, every week when I open the word, one of my first thoughts is I don't know anything. This is an infinitely deep word from God. There's never a sense in which you say, I think I'm starting to get this down. That never is the case. And so you need those to work hard at preaching and teaching. Another good reason for the leader among leaders is is it really provides a multiplication of efforts. If all leaders in the church try to do everything, the quality of ministry just sinks to a lower level. And so we want our elders to be what one guy called a Nike elder. They just do it. They get the job done. They do their areas of ministry. There's a third reason, and that is to provide a unified direction of ministry. To provide a unified direction of ministry. When I first came to Grace Bible Church, there were some significant challenges happening here. Those of you who were here um, know about that. And the church was significantly smaller at that point. In fact, we just had a few dozen actual members, and so we took a, a couple of quick votes. Uh, one vote was to get me here, and the second vote was to vote to never vote again. And that's the time to do that is when there's only a few. 
But when I was under consideration to start as the pastor, basically the main thing I did was to send the current leadership my philosophy of ministry, just my, my written thoughts on what the Bible says on how you're supposed to do church. And it was a very simple proposition. If you like this and agree with it, I'm your guy. If you don't, I'm not. It's that simple. What it did, though, was immediately create unity and direction. Because can I tell you this? Direction isn't set well by committees. Because committees tend to agree on the lowest common denominators. Whereas with a leader, there's a challenge and a high bar of expectation to follow what Scripture says about the church. One more reason that this is a good idea. And that is to provide a pulpit with continuity. If you've been around at all, you know that we love church history here at Grace. And you know that um, church history is important to us. Because it, history isn't a, a doctrinal statement. But history does help us to understand what great men and women of the faith have done in the past. And almost exclusively, the history of the church of Jesus Christ has had one primary preaching pastor in any given local church. That has been the history. And what this does is it provides a centrality to the preached word. It provides a a continuity in being able to have a clear direction in preaching and teaching rather than a, a continual revolving door of hit and miss messages by a lot of different men. And the church needs this continuity. We need predictability. We need to know what's coming next. And this is the clear implication of those working hard at preaching and teaching. If they're only preaching every couple of months, then there's no reason to provide a living for them, is there? The implication is preaching regularly to the same people each Lord's Day. There's a delight and a wonder to walking through a Bible book together start to finish to tackling one major subject together in a topical series start to finish. I'll just, I can illustrate this using you seated right here. How many of you here remember what book we were preaching when you arrived at Grace Bible Church for the first time? Raise your hand. That's how we measure ourselves in the church, what is being preached. The primus inter pares concept is healthy. It's good for the soul Now, by the way, this isn't entered into lightly, nor is it a way to scratch an itch for power and control. When I was in seminary, the guys getting close to graduating who were probably going to be lead pastors started getting really nervous. And the guys who knew they were called to just be an associate pastor for a time, they're just all kind of light-footed and just having a good time because they knew they didn't bear that responsibility. In fact, we have an example of someone who believed himself to be first, but not among equals. Diotrephes in Third John, John said he likes to put himself first. That's not okay. Diotrephes was the worst kind of leader because he wanted to be first all the time. Peter, the most outspoken, the clear leader among equals, his function is important. We understand this. But this should never be caused to diminish the incredible value and importance of all the spiritual leadership in the church. Peter, we know him. I'll bet every one of you could tell me three facts about Peter. He's center stage. How about Jimmy? You say, well, who's Jimmy? I've never heard of Jimmy. Yes, you have, but he's so insignificant that you don't remember. Jimmy was James, the son of Alphaeus. His nickname was James the Less, Jimmy. 
That was to distinguish him from James, the son of Zebedee, whose nickname would go on to be James the Great. In all the lists of the apostles, Peter is first. And in all the lists of the apostles, Jimmy is ninth. Just kind of straggling around the corner there. Peter is the rock, the preeminent preacher of the twelve, and the church would need Peter the rock. He immediately takes the reins on Pentecost, preaching a stunning sermon that saw 3,000 come to faith in Christ. Meanwhile, Jimmy, he wasn't first, but he was part of this group of men that Acts 17.6 says turned the world upside down. There are multiple traditions about James the Less. Some say he ministered in Syria and was crucified there. Others say he was in Egypt and clubbed to death there for the gospel, and yet others say he was stoned to death in Jerusalem. What all traditions about Jimmy agree on is that he was a faithful leader in the church up to and including giving his life for the gospel. Now, maybe he wasn't the rock, but Jimmy is one of the group that Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28, will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And as a reminder for all shepherds, we return once again to Paul. Paul didn't say, we should be regarded as mighty preachers. He didn't say, we should be regarded as the greatest of the great. He didn't say, we should be regarded as men to be revered. He didn't say, we should be regarded as the nobility of the church. He didn't say, we should be regarded as the heroic, majestic men of the church. Rather, he said in 1 Corinthians 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's it. Stewards, servants. That's it. So whether vocational or volunteer shepherding is a weighty and awesome responsibility, it is not to be taken lightly and certainly not taken on for personal satisfaction or comfort. Why is it so important? Because from a human, a human perspective, souls are at stake. The eternal destinies of people are at stake. And so for you, it is important for you and it is to the glory of God to know and believe and practice these concepts. Because if Christ, who is the head of the church, took the effort to reveal his will and his plan for the church, then we give him glory by honoring his request. So we don't just make up our own ecclesiology. Rather, to the best of our ability, we obey the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And I do have to say this, because I know for the most part I'm preaching to the choir. There are some of you who have never obeyed Christ, not even once in your whole life. How do I know this? Because if you haven't come to faith in Christ, you haven't done what 1 John 3.23 says, and that is to obey the gospel, to come to faith. And so for you, if you're thinking about I wonder how the church is supposed to run. Don't worry about that. You need to worry about, I wonder if I'm part of the church, capital C, the church universal. Because if you don't know Christ, you're not. And these issues are irrelevant to you. 
You are on the outside looking in at a glorious institution that God has made that we're talking about. But you must get on the inside. And the only way to get on the inside is to stop faking it. Stop saying, if I'm good enough, I will please God. Stop saying that if I play Christian long enough, if I hang out in a church that looks sort of like a church, and if I hang out with people who love Christ, then maybe I'll be good enough. You must stop. Because... Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed to man to die once and then to face judgment. There are no do-overs. There are no going back. Oh, I should have done this. Once you close your eyes for the last time, that is it. And whether the elders are vocational or volunteer is irrelevant. Because you'll be separated from all of them for all eternity. And worse, you'll be separated from Christ for all eternity. And so could I say this? If you're not in Christ Don't worry about how the church is to run. We can talk about that later. Run to Christ first. Become part of his church by coming to faith through the cross, the sacrifice that he made on your behalf. That's the bigger issue. For the rest of us who know Christ, we can argue some semantics about vocational and volunteer shepherds and we'll all go to heaven together and, and we'll find out that this sermon was mostly right and maybe you can pick apart the parts that weren't. But let's all be there to have that discussion. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, lead the lost to Christ. Holy Spirit, regenerate hearts even at this moment. And in our church body, for all who are regenerate, I pray we would be faithful. We are living in a world that is increasingly going down faster than we've seen in our lifetimes. And so I pray that we would be faithful to Jesus Christ. We would be faithful to his bride, the church, that we would never cease to give him praise. It is to Christ that we would give all our honor, all of our glory through our obedience, through our humility, through our desire to do to the letter what he has commanded concerning his bride, the church. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.